You should hear a sermon on the honey badger. It's fantastic. Okay. She asked me when she can have the opportunity to preach for 40 minutes. Probably not for a while. If you have a Bible and you do, since there's one in the pew rack in front of you, go ahead and turn it to Mark chapter 12. This is um, starting in chapter, verse 28. If you get a pew Bible, that's 1575. And I just want to recap. What I'm going to try to do this morning is preach the sermon I tried to preach two weeks ago, which I think I can now because some of the groundwork has been set up for it a little bit more. So I want you to know that there's three, two episodes that come before this. One called, um, that says, Paying Taxes to Caesar it's, is the subtitle that I preached a whole sermon on. And then Marriage at the Resurrection, verses 18 to 27, which I preached a whole sermon on. So if some of that stuff doesn't make perfect sense, it's a great opportunity to go to the website and listen to those sermons. So let's start on in verse 28, and I'm going to read through to the end of the chapter, okay? One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can this be his son? The large crowd listening, the large crowd listened to him with delight. And as he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins, worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all that she had to live on. The word of the Lord. Before I dive into this, I need to make two quick introductions. One is... um, this week, um, a young man named Adam Darbone, why don't you stand at him, um, arrived. Um, he is going to be a pastoral intern, hopefully through the end of the year. And you're going to be hearing, yeah, go ahead and clap him. He's been busy learning how to mow lawns and paint trim. And um, <clears throat> I promised him there are Mr. Miyagi um, lessons behind all of that. So if you've got any ideas, please email them to me. Um, so there's that. Also, up in the front row here is um, Ryan Harding and his wife, Katie, when he was here. When I first got—he came for the first month I was here, and he wasn't married then, so he's a newlywed and back visiting, and we're really, it's really nice to have him. So he was the first High Point intern under my watch, so that, and we're going to use him later in the sermon. I have warned him already, so that'll be fun, hopefully. Um, yeah. <clears throat> All right. Okay, I don't know about you, but I have an 8-year-old, a 6-year-old, and a 4-year-old. And all of my kids have—because you know how sometimes when one kid enters a phase—I'm not going to say what I think about phases right now—like um, the whole family enters it all at the same time. They all just jump into the phase of the older kid. Yeah. So they're in the correct mommy and daddy phase, right? So you're talking to them about something that could save their life, right? Which is what we parents think about everything we tell them. And they are really just listening for the one thing you say that they actually know isn't absolutely literally true. Right? So, if, you know, if, if you say, you know, um, 
if you say that like the sun rises in the middle of some tirade about how they shouldn't blow things up with chemistry sets, they'll be like, Daddy, I'm in second grade now, and I've been to science class, and we know the sun doesn't really rise. It, the sun revolves, or the earth revolves around the sun. Don't you know that? You know? And I'm just like, all right, so when I'm done killing you, we're going to come back to this, and I'm going to tell you again why you shouldn't blow things up, which is more salient at the moment, right? I mean, that all through my, even my four-year-old, he is just waiting. He just wants to. And honestly, sometimes I just feel like, and I actually say, hey, what are you? And they go, I'm a kid. <laughs> and, and what am I? You're a parent. Yeah. And who's the teacher here? You are. Let me teach you something. Stop rolling your eyes. Right? <clears throat> That's what this passage is about. Now, some other day when I'm preaching about the vision of High Point Church and we're all being whipped up into an emotional frenzy about what we're all going to accomplish together, I'll come back to this and talk about how loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself is in some ways the essence of Christian virtue. And it was Jesus' moral creed. But this passage isn't really exactly about that. It's not really about that. Um, Because Jesus— moral creed wasn't the point of this whole section. This whole section is Jesus is taking back the right to teach. And in the other passages, he's being, he's being attacked by antagonistic people. They're like, well, should we pay taxes or shouldn't we? Or, uh, you know, if, if some lady marries seven guys and then there's a resurrection, is she going to have seven husbands in the resurrection? Uh, right? But this one, it's not. This guy's, you know, he, he's asking a question. He's saying, hey, you gave good answers to these questions. Let me ask you a question. Of all the commandments, which one's the greatest one, right? But when he answered, when, after Jesus answers, did you notice what this teacher said? Because he's, te- he's a professor. So the professor is coming to ask the pastor or the rabbi a question, right? The, the, the guy asking the question has more s- social credentials than Jesus does. And so I don't know what just happened there. Um, more social credentials to Jesus. So Jesus finishes his answer, and what does the teacher say? Are you fighting with me? He said, the, the, the guy says, after Jesus is done, he goes, well said, teacher. The man replied, you are right in saying that God is one, there's none but him. And then in verse 34, he says, and then it says, when Jesus saw that man had given him a good answer, he said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now that's a really interesting response, right? Jesus gives the answer, and what, what does this guy think is happening here? Right? He, he thinks he's the teacher. He's asked pretty humbly. He hasn't asked antagonistically. He's not being mean. But he asked a question, and he knew the answer. And he's asking Jesus a question to see if Jesus knows the answer. And Jesus answered right. Isn't that great? Good job, Jesus. You're right. And so what happens is the teacher evaluates his answer. And then what does Jesus do back? He evaluates the guy's soul, right? He goes, you know, the guy goes, you answered right. And just goes, yep, and you are really close to not going to hell. <laughs> I mean, you know, this, they're like this close. And because remember what the next line says. Because you might go, well, that's not real combative. Remember the next line? And then nobody else dared, dared to ask Jesus any more questions, Right? The whole idea is, in this passage, just like the other passages, nobody knows who the teacher is. Right? There's three academic groups. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the teachers of the law. The teachers of the law are the most academic of the group. And they all fall one by one. Pharisees go down. Sadducees go down. Now the teachers of the law. And he goes, what about this? He's like, hmm, that's not as clever as you think it is. And you see, even though this guy knew the right answer, here's the reality. As the rest of Mark's gospel plays out, he doesn't know why the right answer is the right answer, which I'm going to get to in a little bit. But one of the things I think that's important to recognize is that um, it's not just a question of who's the teacher. It's a question of in what way is Jesus the teacher? For example, you may not have noticed this because you're probably not a Jewish scribe, but when Jesus quoted this passage from Deuteronomy 6, he made an addition to the way it was normally translated for people, right? The, 
the way that um, Jesus quotes it in 1230 is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's how Jesus quotes it, right? The scribe come back, comes back, and he quotes the same verse, but he quotes it differently. Now, whether he's subtly correcting Jesus, not really sure. Might be, might not be. I don't know. But the scribe comes back and says, um, to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength is more important than all offerings and sacrifices. So he goes back and he, he corrects Jesus' quotation of Deuteronomy 6. Because in Deuteronomy 6, when that revelation is given, it's given there, there's only three adjectives given, okay? And I don't know if you've ever talked to a rabbi about quoting passages out of the Torah. Just like us, when we have a verse memorized, we'll be like, oh, that's not quite right. Because it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Right? So why does Jesus say mind? You see, part of the issue is, is that the way God quotes it, love the Lord your God with all your, hearts, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, that's meant to be vague enough to cover everything, okay? There isn't any part of a human being that isn't covered in Deuteronomy 6. But you can get a little persnickety about it and act like there's a part of a human being that isn't covered by Deuteronomy 6. And one of the things you can say it doesn't cover is mind, and that's exactly the issue in, in chapter 12. The issue in chapter 12 is that the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, and now I'll add the pastoral addendum, us, Imagine that we love God with all our heart, soul, and, stre and strength or resources, but to us, heart and soul are vague words to which if we have some kind of general affection towards God's direction, we, con we convince ourselves that we love God with all our heart, soul, and strength. So Jesus specifically comes in and he goes, well, listen, the problem with you guys is actually the mind part. You need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. All of those have to be included. And what I'm telling you is, and I think he would be telling us the same thing, there are mind problems. Just like there are limitations to how far emotionally you are willing to go. To how far in terms of your will you are willing to go. And how far in terms of your resources, your physical strength, and whatever you have to give. Just like there are limits to those things. There are limits with our mind. And here's, here's the problem. Here's something that's very important. One of the reasons why Jesus has got to be the teacher. Because if, if we don't go all the way in terms of mind, that will keep us from going very far in the other three. Because how you think and how you set up what sociologists call your plausibility structures, which you find thinkable rather than unthinkable, what you find possible rather than impossible— sets parameters on everything else you do and think and what you think might be reasonable. So if you don't, if you don't, if you think in a certain way, all these other things become totally unreasonable. And Jesus is saying, listen, I've got to be the teacher, and I've got to be teaching the whole gamut, and we, I definitely need to be the teacher in this area of mind. Jesus is not really the teacher until he has, and here's my little, here's my cool little phrase. I hope it's memorable. Jesus isn't really the teacher until he has all the alls. He's not really your teacher. He's not really my teacher until he really has all the alls. All your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength. Until that happens, he is not really the teacher. Okay, so I want to go three, through the three main issues in all, in all of chapter 12 here, okay? And hopefully this won't be redundant for you. The first is, is that um, if we don't let Jesus be the teacher in all the alls, we are going to approach the truth based on what's useful rather than what's true. Okay, the minute we, we, we take in the world on the basis of what's useful to us rather than what is true, when we stop being disinterested seekers of truth and we become people pulling from the stream the things we can use, it's over. It's, listen, it is over. You cannot do that and not become an ultimately pragmatic person. And do ultimately pragmatic people obey 
a God that cannot see, touch, smell, or feel? No. Not when it's not in their, in their best interest, in their own mind. And that was the issue with the Pharisees and the Herodians when they came to Jesus and said, should we pay taxes or shouldn't we? Because to them, Jesus was only useful to the extent to which he answered political questions right. To them, truth was not like a rock that is or it isn't, and you can bang your head up against it all you want, and you can have opinions about its density all you want, but the fact is, it is what it is. And yes, our perspectives and descriptions of it may vary, but there is something out there that's true irrespective of you, and the issue is not, is it useful, but how close can you get your description to the thing that's there? Because if you try to break it, it's going to break you. But that's not how most modern people think about the truth. Most modern people think about the truth as something that's useful and therefore something that serves them. The truth is useful if it can bake cookies for you, you know? It's something we use. It's our servant. Just so you can put a face with this, I just thought this would be funny. There's Lisa. And when that's the case, when the case is that we think the truth is something that serves us, rather than something that is that we can discover if we'll listen to the teacher, then the truth can never be anything more than a mirror. That's, okay, let me see if I can angle this so it's not, how's that? Is that less blinding? That's killing you guys? Sorry. That's, yeah, that's not going to work. Okay, I'll turn around in a minute. Pay attention to the point. When, when the truth is this rather than this, when the truth is it something that serves us rather than something that is, the truth then becomes not a teacher but a mirror. We stand in front of it and we go, what do you think? I think you're fantastic. You think I'm fantastic? Oh, that's great. I have some ideas. What do you think about my ideas? I think that I should pretty much live for me because my happiness is really important. What do you think? You think that too? Oh, that's awesome. We are so smart. That's life. Now, it'll be, you, now listen, depending on how educated you are will depend on how sophisticated that process is. You can get shoveled PhD in sociology. You'll do the same thing. You'll just be very sophisticated. You'll quote Stanford sociologists when you do it rather than, you know, my name is Earl, for example. <laughs> but it's a, you will do the same human phenomenon because it's not an intellectual problem. It's a moral problem. It's a heart issue, Right? And so if we don't understand Jesus is the teacher, if we don't give him all the alls, if we don't submit to the transformation of our mind, like it says in Romans 12, 1, then, if, then Jesus doesn't get all the alls. He's not the teacher, and that's what happens to truth. We use it. We don't believe it and let it change us. We look in the mirror, and we reflect ourselves back to ourselves, and we get this feedback loop that ne never lets us grow, never helps us change, never makes us into the kind of human beings we were made to be. And ultimately, it will lead to misery. But that doesn't matter, because that would be a useful truth. The fact is, is that the truth oftentimes ends up in peace, joy, hope, and truth. That's what God promises. But we don't go, oh, so I should do the right thing because I'll get a good result. Well, the minute you do a good thing to get a good result, you're going to get a bad result because you did it for the wrong reason. You can't cheat the truth system. You can't cheat the truth system. Okay. The second thing that I talked about last week is that when Jesus isn't the teacher, our imagination becomes self-serving rather than God-exploring. Our imagination becomes self-serving rather than God-exploring. Say it with me if you're that sort of person. Our imagination becomes self-serving rather than God-exploring. Good, there's none of you. I'm so glad you guys are like me. I hate it when people ask me to repeat stuff. I feel so comfortable now. Um, so what that means is if Jesus isn't the teacher, if he doesn't have all the alls, if he doesn't transform minds, what that does is we use all our imagination on ourselves which makes God look terrible because our imagination is being used on us. Our, we're not using our imagination to see how God is right in a thing. We're using our imagination to show how we're right in a thing. And then when we interact with God's truth, we already have a bad look at it. And so we dump our contaminants back in it. So we're going to have Ryan come up here now. Now, Ryan, could you come up here and help me with this? Now, normally I would have the present intern do this, but 
Adam is only a college graduate and hasn't gone to seminary yet. Uh, Ryan is two years now in seminary, and so he has the expertise to do um, pastorally. What, no, don't drink that. What we're gonna what we're gonna be doing? So he's gonna try to eat seven saltine crackers in a minute. No, you can't drink first. What? Okay, you can have a little sip. All right. Okay, so basically what Ryan is going to do is he's going to feed his imagination on the world. There's four, five, six, seven. Ready? Who, can somebody time this? Are we ready, Alicia? Can you do this, Mark? Ready, set, go. Come on. You get them in there. You got to get them all in your mouth. You got to get them down. So Ryan is, he's using his, he's, he's using his resources to feed him. He wants to feel better. He wants to eat. So he's eating his crackers. And how much time does he have left? Not, are you doing this, Mark? I thought you were timing this. You've got about 30 seconds left. You've, you've still got five crackers. Can you go faster? They're not stale. Don't pick on my wife. Where's my bow? Ready? We, come on. I don't want any. No, this is an experiment. It's an illustration. You've been in seminary two years and you can't do this? Try to put in a couple more. Yeah, peanut butter is going to make it go faster. That's brilliant. <laughs> you were probably a science major. Is he out of time yet? One more. Put in one more. Come on, come on, come on. Make my, make my illustration. Go, go, chug. All right. All right, now. You're thirsty? Are you thirsty? <laughs> All right, take a, fill your mouth totally with this, but then don't swallow it. There's a towel there if you end up gagging. We can do it again. All right, now spit it back in there. Come on. Don't swallow it. You didn't know you were coming to a junior high sermon, did you? All right, you're done. Great job. There's a drinking fountain out there if you want one. All right. See the point already? Does it look good? Okay. The knowledge of God, what he reveals through, um, through creation, what he reveals through scripture, what he has revealed in the man, Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection and teaching, is the knowledge of God. Okay, the knowledge of God is meant to be a clear, clean drink of water that we drink in and refreshes our soul and remakes our imagination, okay? But that's not what we do with it. That's not what we do with it. What we do is we eat in the world, and we eat in the world, and we eat in us. We eat in our self-interest, and then we get stuffed up, and we take a swig of the knowledge of God, and we spit everything we've put into our head back into it. And then we look at it, and we go, that's not going to help me. That's gross. That's gross. I don't want to drink that. And we push the Bible for the way we push the gospel for the way we push all these things that we imagine are true or God away because our imagination that we've spent on ourselves has created them and then we've backloaded it into the knowledge of God. And now the knowledge of God looks like that. We don't want anything to do with it. We don't see it as a cure for our stuffed face. But it's not because God has contaminated it. It's because we have. Because we spent our imagination on ourselves and that will always, 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 always happen if Jesus, the teacher, isn't given all our mind, if he doesn't have all the alls. The last one for today is that if Jesus doesn't have all the alls, if he doesn't, if he doesn't, if he's not the teacher, if he doesn't get the opportunity to work through the transformation of our mind, is that we're going to get speculation. We're going to get speculation instead of subordination. Now, we don't like the idea of subordination. We don't, we don't like the idea of somebody being our superior. That's pejorative, right? Now, you go back a couple hundred years, not even that long, and the idea of superior just meant somebody who was, in, was over you. It didn't mean that they were functionally humanly superior, that your life wasn't worth as much. It meant that they were ahead of you in the, in the role of what was going to happen. The only, one of the only places we've kept that idea is in the only place where it's absolutely necessary, right? The military. It's the only place we've kept it. Because if you don't keep it in the military, you're just going to die, and you're going to die quick, okay? Now, if you don't keep it in everything else, probably your culture is going to die, but it takes a lot longer. So 
you, and we can tell ourselves that it's other things causing the problems that it's creating. But the reality is, is that subordination is incredibly important. And if you don't think so, just go to the pool on a hot summer day and watch kids screaming at their mother because they got the wrong ice cream for them. Or hitting their parents because they don't like what's happening. And you will see the extreme of what we all tend to do, including me and my parenting every single day, that we have this overall overriding guilt idea that the idea of superiors and inferiors functionally has to be tied in with the superiors and inferiors morally, and therefore we have no ability to understand and receive authority, nor any, understand, any understanding of how to receive and execute authority. And a world without authority is really not as cool as we all imagine it would be when we were in the positions in our life under like 23. We didn't have any authority and we didn't like the people who did. I mean, how many people are here who, you know, are my age or a little older who maybe five or six years ago didn't have squat for authority and thought the world would be a lot better place if there was a lot less authority. And then you ended up in charge of people and you realize somebody's got to be in charge. These people beneath me are idiots and it's got to be this way. Right? You know the wheels would come off. And it's just slowly dawning on you that those middle-aged guys that you hated, that it really, you would have knocked the wheels off the thing if they hadn't been there to say, stop it, young guy. We'll keep this, but not that. And the reality is, is that in the teacher relationship, in this sort of teacher situation, Jesus is saying, listen, this is not a collegial gig. Okay, this is not the faculty gets together and we discuss this. This is you are a kid, you are the student, and I'm going to teach you. And you are going to do a bunch of your own thinking. Because look in the Bible, does it answer every single question about everything? No. One of the funnest things in the world is that God left us science. Right? Now Christians historically have been, I mean, historically in the sense that we've been bad-mouthed about it, and some of us have gotten defensive about it, have been kind of like, oh, I don't know if science is really our best friend. No, science is cool. It's truth that we get to go out and find, and that's fun. Same thing with art, right? The, the, I mean, can you imagine there's a whole other Bible had all the art in the world already in it? Every development of art that ever happened, it's all in this book. There it is. Boom. Revelation. This is all the stuff you can do, right? That would not be interesting. God left an enormous amount for us to become self-students, to teach each other, to go through investigation processes and do stuff in science and in art and probably a lot of other things I'm not mentioning right now. But he did not leave that in terms of everything because when you leave a student with nothing to work off of, they can't really get anywhere. And so he laid down a number of spiritual truths and a number of moral truths and he told us a historically true story and he gave us the framework necessary to work with all these things to be transformed, to build his family or the kingdom of God, to do all the stuff we had to have. He gave us a body of teaching and revelation to which Jesus is the front, center, middle teacher. And then all of this is given, given to us by his authority, which is why he said the whole, why, why Jesus said the whole Testament, not one letter is going to go away, and then I will send my spirit to which we get the confluence of the New Testament, right? And if, here's, the, here's the problem. It isn't either or. If you do not choose subordination, you are by default choosing speculation. That is, instead of turning our imagination in on ourselves, what happens is that once that process is becoming more complete, the misuse of information that happens because we want to use the truth rather than know it, and the misuse of imagination that comes from using our imagination on, our, on ourselves instead of understanding God, those two get put together and multiplied, and we start speculating about the outside worlds in ways that are just not true. And it's interesting how most of those speculations will be us glorifying and not God glorifying. Let me give you just an example of this. Um, in, in the book of Joshua, in chapters 7 and 8, the, the Israelites have been in the desert for 40 years. They've come out of Egypt. They're going into the land promised, God promised to give them. And they're going to have to fight these massively militarily superior societies. Okay? They have basically bunk for weapons, and they're going to go against people in fortified cities, which is just a recipe for absolute stupefying disaster. And the first city they destroy, the city of Jericho, they're told they can't take anything from it. Right? So like, they don't have much for weapons. Now they destroy the city. There's tons of weapons and they can't take them to go fight the next people, right? It's not much fun. So, they, so the next, second place they fight is a place called Ai. 
Now Ai is a disaster that gets turned into a success, but it's the second city that Joshua leads the Israelites to take in the land of Canaan. Now, here's the issue with Ai. The traditional site for Ai was excavated over the last hundred years, and nothing was found from the period of Joshua, 15th century BC. This is the assumption. That's somewhere between 1200 and 1500. There's some time in there. Now, the only thing they found was something much later, right? So here's the question. If you dig up I, and there is no evidence of the civilization the Bible said is there, that the Israelites destroyed, where do you go from there? Right? You can go in two directions, right? You can either say, well, the Bible said there was an I, and we've excavated it, and there's not. So apparently the Bible— this section of the Bible, at least, must have been written later and written to glorify the actions of the Israelites in a way that would make them look better and solidify their cultural history and all that kind of thing. So it, it's mythology. And so probably there's other stuff in the Bible's narrative books, particularly that's mythology. So here's what we should do. We should go to all the other sites that the Bible says exist that we know there are, and we should dig them up and see if, in fact, the Bible's actually wrong about a number of these places. Because probably that means that the Israelites didn't destroy Jericho, and it probably means the Israelites didn't even take Jerusalem. I mean, who knows? Who knows, right? And so you can go that route, right? What's the other route you can go? Maybe this is an I. Right? Maybe this isn't it. I mean, have you dug up every square inch of Israel? No. Is it possible there's another place? that has a ravine that's kind of arc-shaped, that's relatively close to a city where you can set up an ambush, which is all the Bible says about the location. Right? But here's what we, here's what we get from most of the people that studied the issue of I archaeologically over the last hundred years. These are quotations from their commentaries. I is simply an embarrassment to even, to every view of the conquest, that is the Israelites in the conquest of Israel, that takes the biblical and archaeological evidence seriously. Quote, the evidence shows that the narrative in Joshua is not to be taken literally. Don't you love people who say, whenever there's an academic problem, you just don't take something literally and that's supposed to somehow solve it? I just, I've never understood that. Or third, archaeology has wiped out the historical credibility of the conquest of Ai as reported in Joshua 7 and 8. There is no evidence of a Canaanite city in this spot or any other site in the region that um, this constitutes unequivocal archaeological evidence for the lack of a correlation between the story of Joshua 8 with all its topographical details and a historical reality, correspondingly, corresponding to the period of the conquest. Or, quote, the narratives of the capture of Jericho and I are devoid of historical reliability. It goes on. I just want to show you that I'm not cherry-picking, okay? This is the preponderance of the commentaries on this. This lack of any late bronze Canaanite city in the vicinity contradicts the narrative in Joshua 8 and shows that it was not based on historical reality. Or, quote, in short, the evidence shows that there was no city of Ai, at Ai for the Israelites to conquer. Do you notice the logic in that last one? There was no city at Ai for the Israelites. You see the logical confusion? It's a confusion of the site with the reality. It's not I. Well, if it's not I, then it's not I. That wouldn't be I, so there could be an I. Right? Hello? But, listen, if, if you—publishing must happen, right? Now, listen, my, what, I'm, what I'm not doing here is trying to pick on scholars, because here, here's, here's the advantage scholars have. It's their job to speculate, okay? It's their job to. I don't get upset when— when people in biological chemical sciences do extrapolations of evolutionary theory to try to come up with drug research, I, I don't get upset about that, okay? Even if I don't like all their premises, it's their job to speculate, okay? I, there are people who say things in economics that I think is really dumb. But I don't get mad when Paul Krugman says them. I get mad when my representative believes them. Because it is the job of economists, it is the job of sociologists, it is the job of psychologists, it is the job of English literature professors to speculate. Now, it is also their job to tell us when they find out their speculations are totally wrong. And it is also their job to investigate whether or not their speculations are wrong, right? And not be thinking only of their career, but they should be thinking about the truth, right? But we all do the exact same thing. We do the exact same thing. So can I meddle for a minute? Here are a couple of examples. Oh, sorry, I should tell the end of that story, shouldn't I? (laughs) 
So there's no why. Let's go on. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, okay, so where's that slide? Let me go back to that slide for a second. Okay, so let about almost exactly half a mile from the traditional site of I is an alternative site to I that has been dug up since 1995. It began in 1995. It, was, it began to be done in earnest in 2008, 9, and 10. And it just so happens that one of my colleagues at Lynn Haven has a PhD in Old Testament, and he got on the dig team there. It's being dug, excavated by a guy that got his PhD from the University of Toronto in Ancient Near East Studies. And it just so happens that the site meets the, the biblical requirements topographically for I. And it just so happens that there is a Canaanite fortress with walls and barred doors and thick walls and people living there, a direct line of eyesight for signaling to the city of Jerusalem that fits all of the requirements and everything you would think would go along with the biblical account of I. It's just a different spot. But did you notice what, what the quote said? Not only were they certain it was bunk, they said there was nothing in the vicinity. How could you say that? Did you dig up the whole vicinity? No, but they were reasonably sure. Well, that's okay. But here's what we need to realize. Sometimes when you're reasonably sure, you shouldn't be. I think that they should have let the, the ancient text be the teacher a little bit more. And I think they should have pushed on. I think they had the obligation to push on the ancient text rather than just go with the basic, well, the ancient text is full of crap. Or is wrong, sorry. Which is what scholars tend to do because it's just more fashionable, Right? It's just more fashionable to say, well, this can't be right. But what's more fashionable for us? To speculate that the thing we want to be true, the thing we like, must be the best thing. You ready for me to meddle? Let's talk about happiness for a second. How many of us really believe that happiness is something that happens to us rather than something that we are from the inside out? If you don't know, let me ask you this question. Because this settled it for me. When you daydream about alternate lives, if you can even bring yourself to admit that you do that, do you daydream about a life that is basically just like yours, but where you're fundamentally emotionally different? Or do you imagine yourself in an alternate life in which the things around you are basically different? Right? I, I don't, I imagine myself in a world where I am basically me and everything around me is different. I make more money, my kids are more obedient, my job isn't as demanding, everybody thinks I'm fantastic, I don't get these little cards that tell me I'm doing everything wrong. I just imagine, oh, that doesn't really happen very much, don't worry about that. Um, uh, and that's, that's what I imagine, that's my fantasy life. My fantasy life is one in which I'm the same, my life is different. That totally betrays that what I really believe is that what controls my happiness, what would make me happy is a change of circumstances around me and in the people around me. That's what it means. I can say all I want about how transformed a life I'm living and how I believe the gospel in every area of my emotions. That is bullcrap. The bottom line is, I think if people were nicer to me, they paid me more, my nice wife just like wanted to get my slippers, my dog listened when I told him to do stuff, and my kids did what I said the first time I said it, and my property taxes were significantly lower, that I would be happy. And I'm not saying those things would be bad. I'm just saying that that betrays that what I th really think about happiness, that I have somehow accepted through the programs and movies I've seen, through the way I watched my parents act, through the self-serving assumptions I made about life all the way through, that what I really believe in the deeper motivations of my heart I believe the speculation that I have no good empirical evidence for that happiness is something that happens to me, not something that happens from the inside out. And let me just say, let me just accuse you of something. I bet that's true of you. And that is a hazy, foggy speculation. You have no idea how it happened. You have no idea how to get rid of it, but it's there. And it's a speculation just as bad as that I couldn't really exist. And it will remain there until Jesus gets all the alls 
and he becomes the teacher. And he begins to remake all those assumptions in the mind so that they can start working out to the heart and soul and the use of your strength. Can I meddle a little bit more? Let's talk about parenting. Almost all of the actual evidence I have seen about parenting is that we American parents spend too much time on our kids and too little time disciplining them. We spend way too much time nurturing them and way too little time disciplining them. What, what that has created in American parenthood and one of the reasons it so fastly dissolves American marriages is because it makes us feel both overwhelmed and helpless at the same time. We feel overwhelmed because our kids take every moment of our time and we think that if they didn't, we would be somehow a bad parent. Meanwhile, we feel helpless because our, our kids are driving us nuts and we can't make, um, and we can't make our disciplineless models of parenting actually work. The result of that is we feel like we have to be around our kids all the time. Our kids are nuts. And, we are, we, and when, so we go out and we find some other book that tells us we can raise our kids without discipline. Why? Why do we do that? Because we hate disciplining them. You can tell you all you want about all these profound psychological theories, and don't you know, and I'll get to them in a second, but bottom line, we don't want to do it. Lexi and I were reading this parenting book. We were driving in the car with the kids. It was kind of a bad time for the kids to misbehave while we were reading a parenting book about discipline. Um, we're driving back from Florida, and we're reading this book, right? And, um, and the author goes, most parents, when they discipline their children, children, try to discipline their children in a way that doesn't hurt their feelings. That's insane. <laughs> if you've disciplined your child and you haven't hurt their feelings, you haven't disciplined them. If you would have asked your grandmother, Grandma, how, could, how should I discipline kids without hurting their feelings? They would say, sweetie, that's what discipline is. You're supposed to hurt their feelings. But we, what do we really believe? What do we really believe about parenting and children? Here's what we believe. One, discipline psychologically harms children. That's what we really believe. The Bible says the opposite of that. The Bible says that discipline will help our kids be psychologically well-rounded and happy and all of that. But what we, what we really believe is discipline hurts children. Two, that numerous sports activities make for better adapted and successful adults. No empirical evidence of that. You hear rumors like girls who play soccer have better self-esteem and engage in sexual promiscuity 18 months later than other girls. You hear stuff like that. The basic stuff being done by non-Christians coming out now is, listen, your kids are basically academically and career-wise going to turn out like you. There's nothing you can do about it. Okay? So just quit obsessing about it, enjoy it more, and relax. The stuff we think we can control is exactly the stuff we can't control in parenting. And the stuff we think we can't control is actually the exact thing we can control. There's been a complete switch in American parents' understanding of parenting. We are spending all of our time and resources on something that we cannot create a hill of beans of change about. And we are completely neglecting the only thing we can impact which is the moral formation and character of our children through discipline and the formation surrounding godliness. Third, child phases end on their own, so we should just relax and let them pass. Okay? Teething ends on its own. Okay? Three and four-year-olds going through a talkative phase ends on its own. Okay? Tantrums? Talking back, not doing what they're told the first time, not respecting authority, when they do obey, rolling their eyes and pitching a fit, that doesn't change on its own. Some of it gets a little more sophisticated based on how your behavior can be manipulated, but those phases end when you end them, not naturally when the teeth come in. But we all believe that. Why? Because it's easier. If you Read in some newspaper that somebody said, your kid's back-talking phase will just end. It's a phase. 
They do that from like 3 to 17, and it's going to be over in a while. We'll just go, okay, well, you know, no sense in making a big uproar. No, it doesn't end. That's bull. Okay, that's not true. Or can, you, can I do a couple more? Okay. Setting rules and strictly enforcing them is to misuse our authority, and a child should have the same rights as anyone else. Okay. Ooh, all you want, that's what most of us do in practice. Most of us feel guilty about using our parental authority unilaterally. This is a fact. So just, just look around. Most, when our kids are being crazy, we feel somehow morally neutered. We just can't go, listen, I'm your dad, and if you don't stop that, you're going to die. <laughs> That's it. Boom. Like, we, we just, we feel like we're misusing power because the cult, what's the, the cultural kind of soap is authority. When you use your authority, that's a misuse of power. Everything's a power grab. Everybody's just trying to get more power, and everybody misuses power for their own self-interest. And so if we tell our kid to stop being crazy, nuts, immoral, and dishonest, we are somehow doing it for our benefit, not theirs. Listen, if you don't find yourself using your authority as a parent in a self-interested way sometimes because you've made a mistake and slid partially into that, you're not even in the game. You're not even in the game. If you don't, do, if you don't discipline your kid and go, oh, I over-disciplined. Crap. You, you're not playing. Like, just about every week, you should have to apologize to your kid that you were too hard on him. Son, I'm doing my best. And I realized that when I just, that was more about me than about you, and I'm, I apologize. If that doesn't happen, it's because you're not, you're not, you're not disciplining enough to, for that to ever happen. Right? Wrong. Okay. I'm wrong. Sorry. <laughs> Letting a child choose what's best for them when they are young will help them make better decisions for themselves when they are older. Seven. Being positive and not hurting a child's feelings makes for better self-esteem in the long run. Okay, all of these are assumptions. I'm not talking about other people. I'm talking about us. We believe these seven things, and we practice them on a daily basis, and it's completely obvious by the way we act, and our children act. And, and I say we, I mean we, I mean me, okay? And there is no empirical evidence that's any scientific good that shows that any of those things are true. What we do have is the most dysfunctional generation America has ever known that was raised on these principles, now trying to raise kids. That's me, the Dr. Spock generation. And if, if we don't wake up, we're going to go crazy, friends. And our kids are going to be just in a load of trouble. And listen, and this is just an example of all the ways when speculation and truth turn in on ourselves, and Jesus isn't a teacher, and we don't give him all the alls, and he doesn't reform our mind in every area of the world, and we don't listen to Scripture, and that stuff happens. We can't get out of it. There's no way to get out of the feedback cycle. Our brain is just feeding this stuff back to us. And we just go delusional. Like, how can a parent— who's getting screamed at by their child while they're trying to give them an ice cream cone, not realize they're in Bucknuts crazy town. Okay? How can they not know that? They very genuinely don't. We don't. There is something in my life, there's something in your life that, that that's true of us about. Wherever Jesus has not been the teacher, wherever he has not gotten all the alls, wherever we're still imagining for ourselves and using the truth rather than knowing it, wherever that's happening, we are living in Bucknuts Crazy Town. Right now. In every area. This whole parenting, these are just examples. So let's end quickly. There's two endings to this story. One is, Jesus saying what? You be careful about those religious teachers. They act like they know me. They act like they love the truth, they act, but they, are, they do not love me. They devour widows' houses. They do all kinds of unrighteousness, and, but they act like they're good teachers. No, no, no. Show me, don't tell me, right? Those teachers, he said, they, they, talk about, they talk about loving your neighbor. What do they do? They take a widow's house. Show me, don't tell me. Is that loving your neighbor? No. So you can stand up there and you can say, well, the essence of the law is loving God and therefore loving your neighbor. 
And then I'm going to go foreclose on this widow because I own this piece of property. And there's an outstanding debt here. But there's another example, isn't there? There's a widow who comes to the box and she puts in everything. What does Jesus say? He goes right there. See her? All these other people are giving out of their wealth. They look good. This one, this one woman, she's giving everything. Now think about that. Most pastors preach a giving message off of that, right? Let's, in fact, let, let's stay another 20 minutes, shall we? I'm just kidding. And you can. That's totally legitimate to, to preach a, preach a giving message off of that. But think of how it falls in this chapter. She's the one who gives the all. She is the one who gives God all the alls. She gives her mind, her soul, and she gives her last bit of resources. Her last pennies she puts in, she, out, of a, out of a desire to give. She, she is giving all the alls. And Jesus pulls his disciples and he says, we've talked to all the religious teachers, but look at this woman. She is giving all the alls. That's what it means to be a student. She's the student. She's going to find what she's looking for. She's given more than everybody. This guy isn't that far from starting to sort of get it right. You see, the, the bottom line of this chapter is, is that before Jesus goes to the cross and he shows how deep it is that he's the Savior, before he shows that he is the one Son of Man who will save us all, he says, listen, you have to understand this. You have to understand, I am, not the, I am the teacher, he's saying, and I am not your teacher until I have all the alls that you seek the truth for truth's sake and not your own sake, that you use the faculties of your imagination on knowing God rather than justifying yourself, and that you seek to be subordinate under the true teacher rather than using all your resources to speculate about how life might be when you know it'll feedback loop to just make things nicer for you. Be free. Be free of it. Let the teacher be the teacher. Give him all the alls. Father, um, thanks for the patience of these folks. They listened to a fairly long sermon. And I pray, God, that you would make it of some use and worth to their hearts. I pray, Father, that what's true in it would ring and burn in. I pray, Father, that whatever wounding they felt, I pray that they would accept that I, I stand wounded with them by what I know of the truth. And, Father, help us to accept from your hand the rock of the truth, even if it breaks us a little, because we know that your redemptive hand would put us back together. Help us to, to live and receive from your hand. Help us to give you all the else. Help us to enjoy that you are the teacher. And help us to be made good students. And help us to receive the joy and peace and freedom that comes from it. Help us be like the widow who gave the last of everything. That there would be nothing that we haven't given. That you would receive all our heart, all our soul, all our mind all our strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand for